Hello and welcome to Climate Avengers. My name is Alina Folks, your guide and host as we discover how founders and investors are moving the needle on climate change. I'm talking with individuals who are proving that people and planet are compatible with scalable, investable businesses. I know what that means firsthand. My entire career has been in climate, and I've been through a traditional Fortune 200 company, and I've founded a climate tech company, Utility API. I raise capital for it from angels and venture firms, as well as non-dilutive capital. I also worked with Tesla and scaled operations globally. Elon told me good job. Now, I show people how to make money and save the world at the same time. Over the past couple of years, I've been digging into investing in this space and exploring opportunities to deploy capital and invest capital and make that capital grow and also save the planet. And these are the stories that need to be told because it is possible that you can do both. You can make money and save the world at the same time. So you know, by listening here, you are now a Climate Avenger. Avenge the climate with us. Welcome in, everyone. Uh, today, we have Grant Canary with Mass Reforestation. Really excited to have him on the pod today. And I'm going to open it right up. Grant, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so CEO, founder, Mass Reforestation, CEO of uh, Silva Seed, uh, largest private seed bank in the West for tree seed. And um, also of Cal Forest, uh, which we acquired and announced, in, uh, um, and that is uh, we grow the vast majority of California's trees. Amazing. And just getting into it a little bit deeper, tell us your story. How did you get to this point, founding and starting and leading a reforestation company? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll I'll uh, I'll give the full summary of what we're up to at Master Reforestation and then that'll give the answer and then we'll back up and like where did we start? Um but the the, the main problem that we solve for people's context is what is a land manager or landowner do with land after wildfire? Uh, and there's been a lot of wildfires. They've been increasing. In fact, the 10-year average has gone up pretty significantly. Uh, about 5 million acres a year is the, is the increase since 1992 to present. And what we do is we um, solve that problem. We provide the highest financial return for the um, landowner, land manager versus timber. Uh, and we are vertically integrated. So we take care of all of the headaches of where does the seed come from? Where do you grow it into a seedling? How do you get it out to site? How do you register a carbon credit project? How do you then sell the carbon uh, removal credits? Uh, we do all of that and we do it with no upfront cost to the land manager because we have project finance, um, which is uh, a vehicle that basically is a loan that is collateralized by the carbon removal credits, which we then sell. And that's what pays for everything. So that's where we are today with the seed bank, with the seedling supply, the small baby cre trees grown in the greenhouse. Um, where, where I got started, well, I mean... Okay, we can go way back to high school and like, where did, where did my like, where did my like, um, MO come from on climate? Um, or we can go kind of like the 20, 2015, 2016, uh, origin of drone seed, which would then become mass reforestation, which would you like to go to? Let's go way back. I think that's really interesting. Cause I feel like there's people in terms of your, like where you are professionally that didn't follow the climate track and thinking about you know, where they were back then might be helpful too. 
Cool. I mean, yeah, like I, the way that I've found this is very much like people are on a, on, on their sort of journey and identifying kind of like the, like, it's like a, it's a journey to be like, oh yeah, this seems problematic. Like, oh no, actually this is a huge issue. No, like this is the issue that I'm going to define my career with. So I think like that's, you know, that's a spectrum and uh, we, this gets into our hiring process that we can talk about later, especially at early stage. But for, for me, uh, a high school English teacher helped me kind of figure out what my, what my values were. And I'm utilitarian, greatest good for the greatest common you know, number of people. And I looked at that from that perspective and I was like, oh, well, this is like climate change is the problem that all other problems report to people who are working, not because other problems aren't important, but because people working on those problems don't get any time on the clock if our political, our economic, our social systems are in the same place as they were in the Dust Bowl um, in the 20s or in the Great Hunger in China, to use like a less Eurocentric example. People are working on healthcare issues or representation issues or any of the things that uh, like people can agree on that like, hey, the world would be a better place if like that doesn't like get any more time on the clock if people are like, hey, where's food for my family going to come from? Like, where's water coming from, et cetera. And I think we got like a brief taste of what that looks like in, uh, in 2020, 2019, 2021, seeing that with the orange skies. And a lot of people are like, oh, actually, like, no, this is a this is a catalyzing moment. Like, I need to get involved. I need to take action. So, I mean, we can kind of fast forward to 2016. Uh, everything I did in my career trajectory prior to that was focused on climate, you know, after that um, sort of realization in high school was, it was focused on climate. So U.S. Green Building Council, way back in the day when the Cascadia chapter was a a single CEO that was paid and everyone else volunteer. Uh, So I had the the t-shirt way before it was cool. Um, Now it's a giant (laughs) juggernaut in the U.S. Green Building Council and, and Green Building you know, movement space, like that's awesome. Love it. Um, worked for Vestas Wind Energy and doing change management projects for executive teams in China, Denmark, and the United States. Uh, and then spent uh, a number of years of life founding a company in Bogota, Colombia, uh, hiring for research teams, importing equipment from Vietnam and taking food waste and feeding it to insects and turning it into industrial protein for fish feed. So um, that company was acquired. The company that acquired that went to go work for them. And um, we built a you know, lab and then a pilot facility, a maggot production uh, facility. So I have the distinguished title of being a, a maggot farmer. And, um, <laughs> and then we were headed onwards to a, yeah, I rolled right, right through that. But hopefully that, yeah, that yeah. some people enjoyed that. But yeah, from there, um, we were building a 55,000 square foot um, uh, maggot production facility and then, uh, you know, left that company. I really wanted to do much more on carbon in the atmosphere, like not a, a tangential on food supply or otherwise, but like a direct, like, how are we going to mitigate the worst effects of climate change? Like it has to, it has to work on carbon in the atmosphere. So it was working through a number of ideas in 2016. And, and we can we could pick up there and you, you tell me where you'd like to go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm curious about um, the English teacher. Was it also like, was there a particular book or is it just that this English teacher cared enough to kind of get into those bigger life questions with you? The the, core, the the class was called Advanced Interdisciplinary Studies, AIS. And we just got into a lot of 
philosophy. And it asked of every student, including me, like, to like think about things that were in that space. And so, and I think like, there wasn't a question of like, just like, def- you know, define your future career path, but it was very much like, uh, hey, it's senior year of high school. Like, what do you, you know, you have, you got to start making some decisions. Where are you going to head? Like, what's, what schools are you interested in? Like, what might you major in? Like, and so this was really some of the thinking in advance of that. And I think, um, that, uh, that was sort of prompting that. And then, I mean, I had people in my life much later that helped me put it into a nice succinct, like, you know, climate change is a problem that all our problems report to like a nice succinct, like, boop, like catchphrase, um, that I, you know, I've been able to like communicate that clearly to other people. But I think for a lot of people, it starts to be this sort of like word salad of like, I don't know how to say it exactly, but this is really important. I should go focus over here on this thing. And I can't totally clarify it for other people, but this is it. I need to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, what, the phrase that I use is uh, showing people how to make money and save the world at the same time, just like truly lifelong Girl Scout type of thing. And I think that's uh, maybe through this podcast, we'll start collecting those, those one word phrases and people can start adopting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give them the notes. <laughs> Throw them in the comments. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then there's a lot of different ways to tackle climate. So you have this idea, I'm going to work on climate and you can go sciences, you can go more business, you can go more social and you went more um, just kind of just professional development type of side of things. It's just um, like a, a true career path. How did you find that? Did you entertain doing a little bit more of the, the sciencey things or how did you figure out your role within the climate sector or climate community? A very painful process that my heart goes out to anybody else going through it. Um, it's fun. It's creative. It's got huge highs and it's got big lows. Um, but uh, I, I, so I, I wouldn't dissuade people from going through it all. But I would say that like be 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 aware of what you're getting into, which is which is a great like fundamental journey. Um, for for me, like leaving the leaving the maggot farm, I very much wanted to you know focus on carbon. And that was a, in 2016, that's a really difficult challenge. And so great book, Eric Ries, um, Lean Startup. That is the origin of product management. If you've ever heard of somebody who's at a tech company that's a quote unquote product manager, like that book with others is largely credited with combining Six Sigma, which is from Toyota and it's like lean production and manufacturing with startups. Like how do you get an idea like into the marketplace at either like a large company or as a startup. And this was like the startup. And if you've ever heard of an AB test on a website, like that was a crazy idea that was proposed in this book that um, he had been working through and doing. So I was similarly following that methodology for how could I think about what might make a difference in carbon in the atmosphere, either being emitted or already up there today. And I think there's a couple of like choices that come here that are all kind of chicken or egg. Mm -hmm. Some of it is like, well, am I the right person to be focused on this particular solution? Do I have the capital? Because different ideas require different amounts of capital. Do I have a strategy? Some companies are built to be acquired. In fact, I've heard of people having like conversations with large fortune, you know, 50 companies like, hey, what can you not build that you wish you could build? And then they build that and they get acquired and they're, you know, done in three, four years. Great. That's a way to do it. 
Um, but other people are like, no, I want to build this thing because I want to see it exist in the world. And uh, I don't know, I want to be rewarded for that construction uh, in a big way when we go public. Um, so I think those are, you know, those are different strategies and objectives. Most people don't know the answer. So you just keep both of those available. But I think the, you know, the, the capital to get started is usually one of the big first questions. And the reason that there are so many more software startups versus hardware startups is that it is cheaper to build a software company. You can get $100,000 worth of AWS or Azure or any other cloud credits uh, to host the software. If you have software engineering skills, like you can do that. So then it's just a question of like, do you have time and you have, you know, can you pay the rent while you, while you write code, uh, coffee and code startup, um, so it doesn't require twenty, forty, eighty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars to get going if you're focused on hardware. So there's a choice there. Um, in some places, like the amount of capital is just so exclusionary that's like you can't really like you. You may have this awesome idea, but it's just going to require a million dollars to do what the, like the like lean startup method um, Eric Rees like would describe as a MVP or a minimum viable prototype. Like what's the test that you can do that somebody would actually pay for this and that they like want this in the world. So, I mean, one of my ideas, like my, my hometown Portland was going through a whole bunch of struggles on the ports. And I was like, what could I do in the ports? Like there's a lot of really, really, really expensive hardware in ports that like, it was no place to like modify, change, change the business model around. Like just, you know, I spent a week on that going through a couple of ideas, iterating like, coming up with like, what would I think about? And I was like, no, I just can't get there on like, how would I even have the like startup capital in this regulatory environment to like, even think about like making a dent in, in this, in this model. You know, I, th I think this is the thing is like my process that I went through was spending one to two week sprints, sometimes getting into a month, like really thinking about like learning about a sector or a technology or a problem and then figuring out how could I build something to impact that? And then figuring out and sort of cross-examining it and saying, why would this be successful? Could I put it in front of people? Would they say they would want this thing? And um, I mean, one of my favorite examples is like, okay, 2016 EVs, electrical vehicles, like going to take 45 minutes to charge. You know what people don't love is a gas station. And the like bathrooms are usually not clean. The, you know, customer service may or may or not be lackluster. The food is usually pretty unhealthy. Like the ground is usually pretty oily and gross. Like, this is not a great place. Like, you know what I'd love is I'd love like healthy food, really nice people, has caffeine, really clean bathrooms. And, you know, I can do some email and work while I'm like waiting for the car to charge, yada, yada. Well, congratulations. Like you've invented a Starbucks. And so like, how is like Starbucks going to like Starbucks might take me out within the first, you know, they're like, great, we love this. We don't, you know, you're not contributing anything to this. So we're, you know, we're, we're just going to do this ourselves now. Thanks for all the work and you're now out of business. So like, that's an example. My general point there was that like, I had successfully figured out that Starbucks would be much better positioned to have a clean EV charging place where you had internet and could do emails for 45 minutes 
You had food that told you that, that was healthy and told you the caloric content or not, if you wanted it. Um, you had caffeine, you had a clean bathroom. And so like, there was no, like, I had nothing to add a value to that space. So like, uh, and it was going to be very capital intensive because you're going to have to figure out how to get a whole bunch of money to get EV chargers. And, and Tesla had the best in the business, uh, at the time and still today. And so how are you going to get to like, as a, as a one person startup, getting getting going how are you going to get them convince them to like hey you should like allow me to have my own charger and you know it'll basically be an ev charging station that's really nice and then knock it you know knocked out and you fast forward like great 2021 starbucks is like yeah we want to be the place that everyone charges their electric vehicles like makes total sense like so i think like going through that process and sort of prosecuting it what i found helpful is ironically like different people will have different note taking methods, but I'm looking for like, when I'm building out my, like, here's here I'm in, in like a one to two week, like sprint, maybe a month, maybe a little longer. I'm trying to learn as much about a sector as I can in a very short period of time and figure out like, what are kind of like the like nuggets of information that are incredibly valuable to building out a business plan and give me like a thesis on, on it. Um, and so sometimes like, I mean, I think one of the pieces that, that, that stuck with me for what would eventually become drone seed was like, oh my goodness, tree planters burn the caloric equivalent of running two marathons every day. And you're like, okay, well, I can see that, you know, based off of that one statistic, which is a white paper that somebody strapped a, a chest um, heart rate monitor on that, like, this is an incredibly difficult, like, like challenge and that like keeping people doing this uh, is, is going to be, you know, over long term, something that like people need better tools. And so like, that was something that to me was like, so if you, if anyone remembers like, or was taught the same way to do a book report way back in the days, like you write down little facts on a note card, you kind of like line up all the note cards. Well, I was like, no, I'm going to do that digitally. Like I'm going to do that. I just do that in an Excel doc and then just keep track of all the sources. Some people could, you know, use, use your favorite note-taking software to organize it and whatnot, but like, you don't need anything magical. Like that's what, that's how I approached it. And uh, I found that very helpful. I had a whole bunch of different ideas of different notes. Um, but ultimately, like then this, the next thing that came that comes is like, can I convince somebody that they would want to like pay money for this thing I want to bring into the world? Um, I get enough of those statistics. I get enough of those facts. And I'm like, clearly, this is a problem. Who would I approach about this? And 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 that's like one of the other pieces like is ask people in industry what their problems are or in a really big way is how I approach it. Anybody I could get in my network, um, and this starts, we're starting to get into sort of the, the, the drone seed origin, anybody that I could find in the forestry industry on LinkedIn, et cetera, I would bug them to see if I can get 15, 20 minutes to talk to them. I figured out what the hook was in the email and get their, get their impressions of like, what are the challenges they deal with? What are their pain points? What would move the needle in the industry? And like kind of tr figure out how to ask a bunch of like intelligent questions that show that you've done your homework, mm -hmm. but also that you're there and you're, 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 you're there to listen and understand if like there's something that they want to see in the world. And I'd been part of a very large tree planting project that in 2006 and 2009, JP Morgan England wanted a one source of carbon credits. Um, this is pre the, the fall of the Kyoto Protocol. And um, so there had been a 20-year pilot project in the northeast of Colombia. 
And great, JP Morgan's like, let's scale this up to 10X. And so here's 30 out-of-house consultants. That's the team I was on. Here's 30 in-house. Let's figure out how much it would cost to put 20,000 people out in the middle of Northeast Columbia, like planting trees. And so like, I wanted to know what it looked like in my home country, the United States. What does the forestry industry look like? What does the reforestation industry look like? And I was really surprised how manual it was versus what I'd seen in the Northeast of Columbia. Uh, and so I was like, oh, well, you know, and drones, 3DR uh, had really taken off recently. And DJI was not yet on the scene, but would be shortly, or I guess it was, uh, but not quite mm -hmm. as big as it is today. Um, and so it was really very much like, I was surprised, like a lot of the reaction was like, we've been waiting for people to come to us with ideas on drones for a really long time. Like we're really so excited to have met you. These are people who are in the forestry industry. Um, and so there's sort of like the, the, you know, the big challenge there is navigating terrain. Um, and so that's really where we got started. Um, I, but the, the reason that I mentioned, like my heart goes out to people going through this process, it's painful. And, um, you know, kind of what set me down on the tree path was I was, doing what people do, which is complaining about this process to a friend and how hard it was. And they, they're like, I guess you're going to go plant trees. And, um, that is what was like, well, I've been a part of tree planting projects. I should look into that. That's what we got me started down that, that road. So I think it's, it's a difficult process. Hopefully there's some like useful tips in there about like organizing the facts, putting it into a narrative, you know, speaking to people in industry um, and then, you know, creating prototypes and mocking things up, whether they're drawn, like what's the cheapest, like it's a fun game, like what's the cheapest mm -hmm. way I could test this concept is just propose it to somebody and ask them if they would pay you for it um, in some clever way. And that is the cheapest way to do it. But now they might need a little bit of like, well, what am I getting? Like, and then you might need to draw some stuff up and, um, and then, okay, I'm interested in this, but like, do you think you can actually do that? Cause I'm not doing anything until I like start to see some product. And like, that's where it was like, okay, well I can, you know, for people who can write software, you can like, great, I can mock something up. And for people who are in the hardware space, uh, who are, who are, um, hitting up on the incline on the treadmill, if you will, um, the, they, you can very much like, oh, okay, well, some hardware is accessible like drones and you can start to like put things together there at a much lower cost point than you can uh, electric vehicle chargers and other pieces. Tell me about those first couple of drones you put together. Like I, I imagine you would have something that would like release seeds or something like that. Tell me about some of those first drones you put together and uh, the successes and failures, I suppose. The way I approached this was not necessarily worrying about the drones, but worrying about the, like what goes on the drones, like what's the payload, because the drones would effectively be a commodity that a lot of different people would have economies of scale and be able to manufacture cheaper, more successfully than, than we would. Um, was my thinking at the time. And so focus on like, well, what's the seed, um, what's the seed vessel and what's the seed, um, what's the seed uh, sort of approach? Like, how do you get it into the ground? And so I think like, I mean, we, where, where I started was thinking about that and looking at like, what are the materials that biodegrade and what are the material, like how, like what's the, what's the targeting mechanism and then thinking about it from, all right, what. And then how do I get it on the aircraft? Okay, how do I control it with the aircraft? Um, and I think like I started off in a in a place that um, many like folks, like I, I started to realize pretty quickly over a short period of months, like 
that was not really where I wanted to take the technology, but where I started was with biodegradable filament from 3D printers, encapsulating a seed and being shot onto the ground via a paintball gun. And so working with folks in the paintball mm -hmm. industry, working with folks in the 3D printing industry, working with, so like, that's really where we started in the first couple of months before we very quickly realized that like via trials of the seed vessel, that the biodegradable filament did not break down very well in the natural environment or in a greenhouse or anywhere else. Um, and it kind of, and it didn't trapped and killed the seed effectively. Um, so like, like we got started, we, we worked through the like original idea, the like initial videos, super exciting. Like we've got this drone. It can like, it can like shoot a paintball, like great. Now it can shoot the seed vessel we made. And, um, there's all these problems with it, but like, what's the root is like, well, none of that's useful unless the seed is growing. And so, yeah. um, I think that was like a, an early sort of getting started on um, on how we approach that problem. And then there was all this other backend software we needed to build and approach of like, how do we target the seed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So like, but I think as far as like, what got us the initial capital was going through what was eventually a product that we would discard quite quickly and realize was like, not the thing that we should be building. And this is where some people criticize the startup world is like, oh yeah, move fast and break things is a terrible strategy. But getting through the learnings of like, oh, we got to a place where we we've very quickly determined that like this idea was not going to get us where we wanted to go, but there were other merits to this idea that we wanted to continue to pursue of how do we fly multiple drones? How do we do that with software? What's the end product we're delivering to the industry? Um, and so I think you know, we can talk through kind of like how we got that sort of initial capital. Cause I think that's like the hardest thing, especially in hardware. If you're not just like, well, I'm just going to like, you know, I'm just going to, I, you know, I I'm going to write some software through a painful process, but it's, it's uh, but I can afford it. Cause it's, it's effectively like something that is, is mental work. That's a different process for hardware. Absolutely. And you mentioned funding. Can you talk Talk me through that initial funding round and what those conversations were like. So there's the inception capital and different people have different amounts. It's what came out of my pocket. And some people have different starting points there and that sucks. But there's a lot of accelerators that you can get into that can help you sort of like get past that. So for me, what did I have to do? Built a, a prototype um, seed depositor. This is a paintball. Get a, get a drone. I, you know, I think like the paintball was like custom stuff was like two grand and like the drone was like six grand. I'm curious, what did that table like? Did you just have like a big table in like your garage or if you're living in San Francisco, there's not really like garages. So did you have just like a big table somewhere with like all the like the, the paintball stuff and a 3D printer? Like what did that environment look like? I worked with people who already had the skills to build what I was looking for and had already gone through a lot of like the lessons of how would you build something that, that was going to serve the purpose you're looking for. Meaning that like, how do you get something to fire on an actuator with electrical engineering connected to software at a controller? Like I could have spent many months building up those skills, but the time that it would have taken versus I had a small amount of capital that I could spend on this, I went to people to try and get those skills and 
the benefit of those skills to have a more rapid prototyping process so that because I may, you know, as it turned out, I wasn't even going to need some of those skills later. So you could say I saved myself a ton of time. Now, time and capital aren't one-to-one fungible and not everybody has it. So it may be something that people choose to like pick up those skills and figure out, or maybe they just already have them from another career path or, you know, they just, that was something that's a hobby or a passion. I mean, this is why hobbies and passions are, you know, awesome as they, uh, they allow you to build things. Um, so I think like, you know, I went to people for those mm-hmm. because they already had those skills. Same thing with the aircraft construction. I need an aircraft much bigger than anything you could get at Best Buy or whatever. And so I went to somebody who built custom aircraft that had been building from the remote control or the RC industry for a really long time and had Mm -hmm. moved into drones. And so then you combine those two pieces and I probably saved myself six months to a year of like electrical engineering training and carbon fiber, like molding practice and all this stuff. And I so that was a, a faster way to prototype. And so like fast forward to like, great, how does that translate into like, this is moving the needle for the company? Like, this is the chicken, the egg, like, so got to build something so that investors get excited and how much is built before you've got some of the initial investment. What do investors want to see? Investors want to see customers. What do customers want to see? They want to see that you can build stuff, which you need money for. So you've got chicken, egg, um, mm-hmm. or I did anyway. Um, and, uh, and so Built, you know, kind of built up the the drone, took it to uh, City of Beaverton and a group of angel investors. Won a competition with some other startups. Um, got you know twenty k and uh, some office space in Beaverton. That got a little press article in the City of Beaverton paper. I had worked with somebody to create a website. It's the front door. It's how people contacted me. It was it a great website? No. Was it a functional website that people could contact me? Yes. So based off of that newspaper article, one of the largest timber companies in the nation contacted me and they were like, hey, we're excited about what you're up to. And, you know, we should have a phone call. So I did that. And they're like, do you know who we are? And my response was, well, I mean, I looked up who you are, but I don't have like a ton of context. And you're like, well, you should learn a lot more because we're one of the largest timber companies in the nation. And so I was like, yeah, great. All right. Um, what did that translate to? Well, the the currency for investors is letters of intent. And these are on letterhead. They're not a contract. They're non-binding. That's the important language there. And they say, I'd be willing to pay for this. And ideally you can get some range number of like, X to Y dollars per acre or, you know, this much for a pilot project, you know, put it in a range. It's real loosey goosey, but what is it? It's your first, it's, it's, it's a first proof point for an investor of, oh, there's a very large timber company that's interested in this Mm -hmm. and enough so that they went on letterhead. And it's not always easy to get people to like put something on letterhead because they know that like, there's some modicum of accountability to that and not, not anything legal. You're not going to be able to like come after them for money or anything, but it's just more like they have to do it. There's a little friction there and it's on their letterhead. So somebody else might see it. And so there's some tiny bit of like, if it's not possible to get even that, I think a lot of investors are like, it doesn't even really seem like you're able to get like the basic of like an indicator of interest. Um, so based off of this sort of early in this investor interest, this prototype, uh, this letter of intent, we applied for Techstars. And so that um, 
we we had a nice video. Videos are amazing for communicating very quickly uh, with very few words. And so that really got us um, far in the process. And we chose to do a live demo for the Techstars interview process. You know, this is obviously of the the, the seed depositor. And so um, it was it was in a conference room <laughs> and uh, we're like, OK, um, like so we approached it in that way. And like investors love seeing things. They love playing with things. This is something that um, Techstars will advise all applic- uh, you know, applying companies like it's much more powerful to be able to pick something up, talk about it or, you know, mess around on a keyboard and see somebody's software than it is to like, let me talk to you about my PowerPoint pitch deck. So then combine that with really the like market size of the idea where I'd done a lot of research, like how much reforestation is done in the United States? What do people pay for it? This is where I'd talk to everybody in the industry to kind of get some numbers around things and some of the sort of more traditional, like write a business plan that has really fallen out of favor, like write a 20 to 40 page business plan. Like that's a, it's a, not a great process for startups because of how fast that business plan can change and how much effort it takes to write 40 really quality pages. So like, this is much more of like writing what would fit in two to three bullets when somebody, an investor asked me, so how much money do people spend in the like United States on reforestation? The idea is generally for a startup needs to have a large enough market size that it's exciting. And at that seed stage, it's exciting for an investor because it means that the company is going to have lots of room to move around and play with different ideas. They expect the company to change. So then the next piece is um, as a sort of friends and family or an angel, you're betting on the team. You're betting on the people to make good decisions with your capital and inside of an idea that you believe in with a market that's really big. Now, what's a big market? The way to litmus test this that's common and the way I did it was okay, great, here's a market. And the common errors here is like, well, we'll just get 1% of the Chinese market and then we'll be a you know, $20 billion company. Well, like, it's like, okay, what's your addressable, what's your, what's your total addressable market? Like what's your obtainable, what's your, what's your serviceable and obtainable, um, you know, TAM, SAM, SOM are things that people can look up or flag that. There's a whole body of knowledge from that. But ultimately you will, you, what, the way that like, I've seen most angels and VCs grade startups is they're like, okay, great. The market for the Pacific Northwest is, you know, pick a number. Let's call it 10 billion to make math easy. Cool. A market penetration over 10% would be crazy. So your market penetration of a billion would mean that you have the opportunity to be a large company. And that all of a sudden, you know, makes me believe. Now, if you can only justify a market of a hundred million and it's a 10% market penetration, then you're at 10 million and that starts to be a very tiny market. Now, maybe there's a much bigger global market, but software can access that market. Hardware probably can't. You have to build things and install them and move them to places. It's not just, you know, ship to a server and it'll all of a sudden be accessible someplace. And so sort of thinking about that of like, okay, 10 billion market size, 1 billion is a 10% penetration investors can generally believe that and what are you tracking to well what's the end value of the company that says this is going to be a billion dollar company aka a unicorn and when it goes public because it's got a whole bunch of people that are you know just can't wait to give it money because this idea is so needed in the marketplace 
Um, and so that's like some research there around the market, the team, and sort of like, could they, could that team, could we build an initial prototype? Do they have the right people, uh, et cetera? And this is where like a lot of the co-founder dating comes in and the like, sort of recruitment of the team, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to get into. Okay, so you have the founding team. And then what does that hiring process look like? Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to be like, to give kind of the most instructive, the co-founder process is really hard. And, um, but let's talk about like, Hey, you've got a co-founder. Ideally you have somebody with business skills and somebody with technical skills. That's the general of what people look for. Um, and so let's fast forward to hiring on the team. Say you've got those things. The next piece then for us was, um, okay, like recruit people in. And this is where I had some hard learnings. I just about killed a company by not having a hiring process. Um, and because it's, you know, hiring and HR and these people career directories, I'm going to talk a lot more abstractly than I have in prior here. But um, the it did not occur to me that it wasn't obvious to everybody else, candidates, that mitigating the worst effects of climate change was the most important thing that we could all possibly be doing because of this earlier conversation we've had about like, if we don't do that, like nobody else gets any time on the clock to do anything else. Cause like, you know, we look at dust bowl, like, man, that, you know, local towns were trading seashells and rabbit's feet because the dollar had devalued so much. Like that's like, that is a next level. Oh crap. Like, you know, we, we don't have the money to figure out how to solve, you know, whatever problem in a hospital or healthcare or whatever. And so that wasn't obvious to me that other people wouldn't have come from that same mindset. Uh, and so it was like, oh, wow. Um, so we got into a hiring process where um, we basically, at this, you know, we're doing some deep soul searching around our, what are our values? What's the mission of the company? And these are things that are like really critical. And I think this is where hopefully I can add a lot of value for to people from because it's a unique aspect for climate. In 2016, clean tech 1.0 was dead. Climate tech didn't exist. So uh the idea that like our mission, make reforestation scalable, mitigate the worst effects of climate change. That's what came out of that time. And then that was something that I think like we did that and then six other values. And I'm not going to share what those values are because they are our hiring process. <laughs> like we're like, well, the like binary of like we will hire or won't is like you must be aligned on mission. And then we'll grade like we'll grade on a um, I think we originally started on a one to ten scale and then decided to move that to a one to four was like on these other values and but like the requirement was had to be aligned on mission and here here's the here's the why is that we could get a lot more diversity into the company rural urban right left political spectrum like you know all of the different forms of diversity into the company. But then there's companies got to have trust. And so what gave trust, if you look at sports teams is a great analogy, we'll go there in a second, like was everyone has this one common thread, want to mitigate the worst effects of climate change, because like it is a huge problem. It is all it is the problem that other that other that other problems report to because of that time of the clock issue. So then all of a sudden, like you look at a sports team. You know, various sports team may have people coming from all kinds of different places, but they all believe that they want to win the Super Bowl or the World Cup or, you know, mm -hmm. pick your you know favorite sports ball like, you know, like event. That is the thing that aligns everybody on one common trajectory and gives people trust. 
you know, I don't, I don't like where this person comes from on this or whatever or whatnot, but like, they want to win the Super Bowl. I want to win the Super Bowl. Let's go. And everybody's got trust that like, even if they don't like the, like how they're approaching it, like we're going to try and get to the same place. And so I think that is a huge advantage that climate tech has that other SaaS products and things like that, that are not focused on maybe as concrete and as dire and as like severe emission. There's a win there because all of a sudden you can get this world-class talent from the oil and gas sector, from, you know, brain drain them. You can get it from um, a number of different places that people are like, you know what? I'm like year year five in in ad the ad industry, and I am freaking done because I am tired of like plugging this product or this other product because it doesn't matter. And um, like that's a huge advantage in recruiting, especially if you're like, well, there's three of us and we have a really cute like PowerPoint deck and like a little robot over here. But like, believe us, we are going to be a billion dollar company. And people are like, okay. <laughs> Why are people going to take that leap of faith? Like there's a mission focus. And so I think that that's like, that's, that's, uh, that's exciting. Um, and I think the other thing I can point to just on the hiring process, the mechanics of it itself, by having those values figured out, it gave us a criteria. And then what I did is that like the team saved me so many times in our hiring process by having a lot of people fill out like kind of like the criteria and give feedback and also how we approached it, like, how do we build diversity into the company? Because at this moment, sort of like, if like, you're like two to three people, we're going to hire the next four to five people. There's this amazing opportunity, which is, of course, you can hire from your community, all the people, you know, a lot of people have communities that look like themselves, talk like themselves, have the same political views as themselves, etc. My job was to tease out some of the pros and cons that people received. And mm -hmm. by having people who are earlier in their career and later in their career interview independently to have people who um, were coming from different places in life, age, gender, all of the pieces, we got a lot of different feedback that I wouldn't have gotten had it just been me doing all the hiring. And that saved my butt so many times. So I highly recommend that process. And then how did I get that feedback? Well, like the book Multipliers is great. It's asking people a lot of questions and I would get like people like three or four of us in a room and say, great, everyone went through the interview. Like, let's go through like on mission where are people at and like one, you know, we start off one to 10 and I'd make people do one, two, three shoot on like where they were at on a number because we're trying to avoid the group think like it's really easy to have a whole bunch of people. Uh, start to just like start to follow a trend of one person says a negative thing that everyone else just piles on. Um, so start with a the positive, then hear the negative. I'd be looking for, I'd, I'd be coaching people every, every time we did this, like we're looking for the negative, like the Delta, like looking for pros, looking for cons, looking for different perspectives. If you have a different opinion, it's more valuable than if everybody just tells me the same thing and then go through like this criteria of our values and on the mission and on their ability to do the job based on their, their CV. Um, we utilized, uh, a to, um, the a method for hiring authors are street and smart, um, and then we incorporated and moved in our values into that process, found that really helpful for a really, really tactical, like in the weeds, um, minutia of how to hire. Um, and we made some modifications from there. So that's really like, and then, you know, from there we like, we, we first, it was just put the numbers up on the whiteboard, comparing four candidates, hire the best one. Then, then it was like, put it into a Google form and like that made it a little bit more scalable. Then it was like, get it into lever that made it more scalable still. So that people had the whole software backend. So this is how we scaled. Now, 
this is the piece then where it starts to fall apart. Somebody on this is listening to this and be like, I'm hiring 20 to 40 people. You're telling me I need four top-notch candidates to compare like that's not scalable. Like that's just not a thing we can do. Right. This is a, something for like much earlier stage. And we held on to it as long as I could fight that fight. And what's the fight? The fight is, okay, we've got 10 positions. You want four candidates. That means I need 40 candidates. That means I need four more recruiters. So if you've got the budget for four more recruiters and external recruiting, great, let's do it. If not, like we don't have the budget. So like, we're going to have to scale down our expectations because we got too many seats to fill. And then you start to hit this at this point where you hit like 40, 60 people in a company, um, or you've like just raised a big round and you're now in like hyper growth, like this starts to break down. But at this, at this nice little moment where there's three people and you're maybe hiring your next like one or two, or you're hiring your next like three or four, like this is an opportunity to get diversity in so that those communities of people can then reach out to their communities. And you're sort of incepting the diversity from the beginning, which is really important, especially for us. Like we're based in Seattle. We work with land, rural land owners and managers that are everything from timber companies to the nature conservancy, to tribal nations, to small family forests, to public agencies, like having people to communicate to each of those audiences to sell to convince, to, you know, build trust, like it requires that diversity. And so that we've benefited greatly from that. What an amazing journey and developing these different processes. Thank you for diving so deeply into that. I, hiring is such an important part. It's one of the top three things, or I think it's the number one thing as a CEO is get people on the bus. You can't, you're not going to have a company unless you have a great team. And so that was just an, a fantastic share. Uh, thank you. That was really great. Learnings where we messed up a lot of things and then worked our butts off to make it better. And I mean, fast forward, like we got to a place where this is kind of comical. Marines that were retired were telling us our process was pretty rigid, which was like, uh oh, <laughs> like red flag. Like maybe we've gotten a little too process oriented. And so I think like, and then we're like, okay, well, we need to cut back. Like this is, you know, much further. We're post series A, et cetera. We need to cut back on the, like the process and allow people to have a little bit more fluid conversation and a little less process. And, and so like we made those adjustments, but I think it's like, like many things, it's a poll, right? Like you've got your sort of like wildcat. Well, like, let's just have them for like coffee. And then maybe we'll like, you know, sort of just ask them a bunch of questions and see what they say. Like, that's like a very, like, I mean, that's how I almost killed the company to the other side of the poll. The other poll is like the like approach of, okay, we're going to have this rigid method. It's going to have four phases, like 16 people are involved. Like everyone's got to hit these questions. They fill out these forms at the end. Then we'll have a big debate. And like in the process, what was the candidate experience? The candidate experience was like, they got to ask maybe not enough questions uh, or ever. We got all the ticks in the process accomplished, but then we didn't really get to know the candidate. We more like sort of filled out the like forms and so I think, and so like we had to move back and be like, okay, well, we need to have 50% of the time that people spend be process oriented and 50% like them asking questions. Cause you can tell a lot about, I can, I can tell a lot about candidates based off the questions they're asking. How much research did they do on the company in advance? Like, um, did they, you know, are there questions like really common or are they coming at this from a very like specific 
place? Are they like very finance driven? Is that how we're going to recruit them and bring them in? Or are they like, I, you could pay me, you know, I would pay you to have this job. Like finance is not the driving motivation. They're like set up for life, but like, oh my God, do they need to have purpose? Cause otherwise it's not, you're not bringing them in. Like those are, those are some of the pieces that I think that like, that we've gone through in our, in our evolution. Um, so yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. And we just have a little bit, let's see, we have about half an hour left. I want to make sure we hit on what you wanted to hit on. Um, let's do carbon credits and then syndicates, if that's okay. How's that sound? I didn't think this is, I mean, carbon credits is another specific area for folks that are thinking about climate. I'll highlight and say like, it's very much like, we'll start with like way high, like level, it's the answer. Like it, like credits and how we connect the human economy of dollars and stock prices and things like that with the ecosystem services that we don't currently value. We sort of altruistically tell people that, yeah, I love the forests and I make a donation, but like, it's not like part of this economy. It's an altruist. It's an altruism. It's a, like, you should, you should, one should support those forests because it's the right thing to do or otherwise. I think connecting those two, paying for those ecosystem services is an evolution of the species and where we're headed uh, to have a sustainable future. And that's from like the really philosophical perspective from the business, like, don't talk to me about altruism and the right thing to do. Talk to me about how things are going to get paid and things are going to get done. Carbon credits where the money comes from. Like a lot of the climate tech company that they are, and you pick your favorites, um, direct air carbon capture, um, mineralization, um, lime and uh, processing of carbon out of the atmosphere in that way, biochar, um, all of them. Where's the money come from at the end of the day? Carbon credits of some form or other different methodologies under gold standard, Vera, climate action reserve, uh, red plus, like those are, those are the, that is where the money comes from. And so, I mean, here's, here's what I would love for people to challenge people's thinking. Like you've got John Oliver, you've got guardian coming out and saying like, well, at some level, you know, carbon credits are bullshit and like, okay, let's take that. Great. There's 170 plus types of carbon credits out there, according to ecosystem marketplace coming from a hundred plus countries. So really what I would like challenge people on is like, yes, there are, there are carbon credit methodologies that are not moving the needle in a big way on climate change, but just, just blanket brush of like, they're all BS. We, they shouldn't exist is very much like way too broad. And it is the funding source for the action that we need. And so, you know, I'll, I'll equate it to, you know, being against uh, lending money at interest. That that is a thing that several major religions took that same approach, and they're like, it just shouldn't exist. Lending money at interest used to be one of the seven deadly sins. Like at least three major religions were like, no, verboten, not allowed. Like, and then you know, fast forward, and like we've got the like Catholic credit card, or you know, pick your religion and association with a bank, right? And so like, there are ways to do. Lending of money at interest that are not predatory payday loans 
and allow people to grow crops in risky conditions with weather that allow people to buy homes without having all the money up front. And so I think like it's it's kind of the same, like if you're just coming at it with zero nuance of like it's evil, it shouldn't exist, like it's not very helpful. So, yes, of course, there are there are, are carbon credits out there. The criticism of John Oliver Rivera and others accelerates the development of like what are the methodologies that are actually moving the needle on climate change um, that are actually paying for um, removal. And I think the other thing that I would, I would highlight for folks that I've identified in my journey is that like, look, like if we don't have carbon credits, then where are we as a species? Like we could do a mental thought experiment. The science bears out. If humans were just magically, there were no more humans tomorrow. We've already emitted so much carbon in the atmosphere that the whole planet would still go through all of uh, climate change in a really negative way that would kill thousands of species. And uh, a lot of bad things uh, are, are destined to happen even without us. So we have to remove carbon out of the atmosphere. So there has to be a mechanism to do that. And the way that we allocate resources as a society is... Um, at least in this society, United States, is a democratic function with political will uh, and the private markets. And so if the private markets is not the solution and carbon credits, then there's a belief that it's great. Well, we're betting on a the political will that may come way too late. And I think a lot of people wouldn't place that bet. Now, should does it mean should we give up on it? No, absolutely. That's how like get involved, vote, like get engaged politically and like put that pressure on. Like the IRA is one of the best possible things to come for, like in our giant step forward for climate action. Um, people like it is incredibly cheap to get involved in federal energy regulatory commission. FERC like races are like super not competitive and ten thousand dollars makes a huge difference. So like get in there. But like where like we still have to remove carbon out of the atmosphere and the way to pay for it in a way that is sustainable, that is not dependent upon government dollars is carbon credits. And so that is where we, we are headed. And so I think like getting the nuance of what are those 170 different types, what is a voluntary versus a compliance um, that is where people like need to be digging in. And for all those entrepreneurs out there looking into, OK, well, I'm going to remove carbon out of the atmosphere via this like cool technology that I found a co-founder who is like coming out of this science or engineering lab and we're going to do this cool thing. Like ultimately what is likely is that there's going to be a need to get somebody that first MVP test, who's going to pay for this. And that's where the carbon credits come in. So, I mean, what I'll hit with our, our methodology, it's under climate action reserve. It's a nonprofit. It's a third party. We focus only on post wildfire sites they are only in the moderate to high severity, meaning that there's less than 25% canopy cover because all the trees have burned. They're not coming back because unlike low severity fires or part of the natural ecology of the site, high severity fires fueled by climate change are burning several inches down into the soil and burning up all the seeds that would normally cause the uh, trees to regrow. So what's likely to come back? Invasives. Evasives aren't involved with the site. They don't retain moisture through the summer nearly as well. So they're just fuel for the next fire to burn the remaining forest that didn't get hit in the first fire. So where we, you know, where we follow the methodology is it's the additionality is clear. Like these are forests. They burned. They're not coming back. Next step. Great. We're going to plant them. Okay. We're going to capture carbon over the next hundred plus years. That's a long ass time. How are we going to like monitor for that? How are we going to cover that? Well, there's um, a nationally accredited land trust. As part of the um, the project setup, they get an endowment just like a university like Harvard or Yale. 
like gets invested in the market, provides a 10% return or whatever, pick your percentage. That pays for an annual site report and a site visit uh, every five years to the next 100 years. And the big benefit of this is for a buyer, they're like, great, I know the monitoring reporting is going to happen. And they have a right to a minimum quantity of trees per acre. Kind of like on properties, you got a right to like a, a, a local community swimming pool or lakefront or something like that. They have this National Credit Land Trust has a, quanti- has a right to a minimum quantity of trees per acre. And they can pursue action against the land manager if there is a, um, you know, that the, there's logging or otherwise. Um, and so that is in the United States, unfortunately, probably one of the most litigious societies in the planet. Um, and so that's really like for an offset buyer, like, great, this is a really, really concrete, specific, like, I know that these trees are going to be maintained. And then the last piece is like, well, what if there's another fire? Well, Mm -hmm. there is an insurance buffer pool that's administered by Climate Action Reserve, and every project contributes to it, just like auto or health insurance. And so if there's a project that experiences a reversal, a fire, um, then the buyers of the carbon removal credits know that the credits are coming from either our project or the, the insurance buffer pool. And we expect fires to be part of the ecology of the site, but we expect the trees to live. And this is one of the common questions we get because we plant at much lower densities. You know, we don't get credits for going over in the Northwest, like call it 200 trees per acre, whereas timber and the forest service end up at 300, 400 trees most often in in that that area of the Northwest. We plant multiple species. So not a monoculture, but a polyculture that helps with fire uh, survival and establishment. And then we utilize seed from as close to the fire as possible. Um, so this is broad genetic diversity. This is the opposite of GMO, where it's like a very narrow genetic band. And so it's all well and good. But then that one insect figures it out and boom, everything's dead. This is we collect vi- like native seed from as close to the fire as possible following U.S. Forest Ser- Service seed zones. So for all these reasons, like we expect the trees to live because of low severity fires um, and that's something that, you know, will help the natural health ecology and then also the co-benefits benefits of habitat um, for the site, mm-hmm. which also help uh, the, the um, trees to live. So those are some of the like the high quality parts of our projects and really excited about that. And um, some of our buyers, um, Shopify, CO2 time, carbon title, et cetera. Uh, just out of curiosity, are you including any mycelium in the reseeding? In some sites, yes. So we have Silva Seed, um, where all the seed comes from, and we, we're the largest private seed bank in the West, or really largest seed bank in the West. And then we have Cal Forest for where, where we can find scientific evidence supporting the improved growth, survival, and establishment of um, dipping the roots in mycelium, um, then, which is like sort of the like early for folks that are unaware of the early stages, like, you know, basically like to put it in like layperson terms, like mushrooms, we, we do do that. Um, now some, you know, we're, I think we're still looking for that scientific support. There is a lot of emerging science is really cool, but it also speaks to the complex complexity of that, which is that like, great, get the mycelium from as close to like where the tree is going to be planted as possible. And it may see, you know, additional performance. Yes. And that is a huge logistical challenge because as close to the site as possible can sometimes be like a six to 10 hour drive from where it may be collected. And also like there may be a lot of collections needed because what is a 
close to the project or close to the planting as possible over a 100 acre site, which is a small site from one corner to the other for mycelium, you know, is a lot like somebody, somebody like explained this to me when I was asking the same questions. Um, Cause I'm a huge fan of Paul Stamets and, and mycelium running and whatnot, but like the distance for like sort of one corner to a, another corner of a hundred acre site for like mycelium is like, can start to like, work out to be like the distance between here and Pluto for us. Like it's, it's a very large distance. So then you're like, great. So do I need to like take soil from where I'm planting every seedling to get some of the beneficial effects? And how do I line that up to like 25 million seedlings at Cal Forest? That starts to be a really huge, like logistical challenge. So I think there's like, we're still sort of figuring out what, what creates benefit for for the the species and and the forest um, that is scale and how to scale it? I think that's a great call to action for Paul Stamets. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, and and it's not like he hasn't been publishing, and so many others in the field have been like figuring it out and doing cool stuff. Um, the the question then becomes like, I mean, I think for people looking for that idea like getting into the like nerdy white papers that are published of various places. This is where I kind of look for those like nuggets um, or rules of thumb or no detail statistics. It's like, I've, I've heard them called in different uh, areas um, of like, how do I sort of kind of create this thesis around, uh, you know, mycelium or um, some other technology that may be out there that um, people have heard a lot about, but are curious, you know, curious. And there's people in the space, Soil Food Web. Um, yeah. I want to make sure we cover everything that you want to say in terms of like call to action for this community or like how can how can the climate adventures community help mass reforestation? Do they need to go buy your carbon credits? They can <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I share, subscribe. Just checking. Yeah, I mean the thing, the the things I would say is it, it always helps to have a small army behind you, and I think that like even in industries where it's a it's a large, highly regulated market, like like SpaceX or whatnot, having a small army of people to tell NASA that they really didn't think the contracting process was fair, um, all of a sudden got some people's attention. So I think like, um, we're on, we're on social media. Uh, we love people behind us. We love people advocating for us. Um, and we love people advocating for the nuance on carbon credits because that's the conversation that's actively happening. And while the criticism and the, you know, the hand of the market is sort of filtering out, what are the methodologies that, um, that move the needle the it can get lost in the message it's way easier to just be like, oh, binary, it should exist or shouldn't exist, as opposed to a nuance of like, there's a lot of people working their butts off to figure out how to solve this problem and they need capital. And a lot of people have gotten frustrated with the nonprofit because it feels like there's sort of like a, you know, the, some of the same criticisms were leveled at the VC community or, or, or can, be, can be found there as well, where it's sort of like who you know and how do you how do you get access to that capital and the process is really slow and then you achieve this awesome result and then there's no more money available it's not like you're scaled up like there's no like cyclical wheel that's in like great you solved that now we're going to give you 10 times more money go solve it 10 times bigger um 
And so, you know, the, I, I, for me, I chose to go for profit. It's, that's the, you know, maybe it's B Corp for a lot of people uh, to kind of strike that middle ground. Um, it's something that we're looking at. But like, I think like for that perspective, I think it helps to have that, that army of people behind you helping find the nuance in the conversation around carbon removal credits and, and, and uh, advocating on that behalf. Um, I think the other thing that I, you know, I can, we, maybe we'll throw a different question um, again, but I think like on raising capital, I think the other thing that I had to say is that for us, when we went through Techstars, we turned around and at the time in 2016, Angelus syndicates were stigmatized and we looked at, and we got a lot of advice, like don't raise from syndicates. VCs may not be able to invest in you afterwards because the SEC, it's in a gray area. And we looked at it and they're like, we think this got cleared up by the SEC. And we think that knowledge is like 18 months out of date. And we think this starts to look a lot like the long tail of investors, meaning like the investors that can't write 50 to $250,000 checks, but they can, there's a whole lot of them that can write, you know, 1,000 to $10,000 checks. And so we were successful in, in raising um, a couple hundred thousand dollars. I won't say the exact amounts, but like, and that was really meaningful at that stage um, for us. It was over half a million dollars. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things that we sort of looked at for the long tail was very much, it's a reference to um, a bookstore or a disc, uh, a, a digital jukebox or other things like a bookstore can hold, you know, approximately 10,000 titles, let's say, but Amazon was making a lot of its money on the next hundred thousand titles that it was selling very low numbers of, but it was, sell there was a lot of them and that's how they were outperforming. And so you could see the same thing in like a digital jukebox, which is no longer restricted by records or CDs could have millions of songs um, and was, you know, winning a lot more money into the jukebox because people got a lot more choice, et cetera. And so we looked at this and there's the democratization of capital and we're seeing the same kind of conversation play out with Republic now. So I think the takeaway for folks is, you know, the first takeaway I, I would hope people would, would have is that like, oh, okay, like what the advice I may give, like, I may need to like figure out again, like, is that right for me and my problem I'm going to want to go work on. Maybe, you know, I've just given some advice. Like for me, I looked at it and said, you know, for profit or B Corp, but like maybe the advice, maybe for a particular problem, nonprofit is the way to go. Um, or, you know, there's, there's other routes. Um, so I would just say that like that capital route may vary pretty significantly, but, but angel syndicates are a great way to raise capital. And like, we're now seeing that like maybe Republic is getting out of that sort of same sort of SEC gray area, Securities and Exchange Commission, that, that uh, climate tech companies can, can benefit from that long tail where people want to see a thing exist in the world. The other way that we've utilized syndicates is thinking about it from, uh, again, like a diversity perspective and an inclusion perspective. One of the things that people may or may not be aware of in the venture capital industry is that raising a fund is hard and that, you know, a new fund manager is something that is difficult to break into. And it's one of those like, well, we'll hire you when you, you know, we'll give you money when you have experience may be a thing that happens. And so the syndicates are a lot of the next like crop of investors 
And I think that like thinking about it from that perspective, they can add all of a sudden in the, in the, in the name of building a small army, if you have a hundred people who have invested, uh, uh, one to ten thousand dollars, call it in your company. All of a sudden, you have a you have immediate like small army of a hundred people behind you, and that's also led by somebody that in our Series A, um, four of our nine syndicate leads were female or LGBTQ plus, um, and so that's similarly building out like great. We want to see more diversity in investors. Like that's really helpful to work with syndicates because they're getting their first cut at. Um, how do I think about building a portfolio of investments? What's the track record I can show to level up into a you know a bigger fund, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that like the, the the no why there is especially from people who are coming from uh, like a diverse background. And I use that like very broadly because like this fits with like immigrants, this fits with veterans, this fits with urban, this fits with rural, this fits with race, ethnicity, sex, gender, like the list goes on and on and on. Well, like one of the things with investors, especially at that early stage, people feel like they know people who are really similar to themselves. How often do people be like, I wish I could go back and I like, I could tell myself this and I would do this thing differently and I would supercharge my, you know, current present day objective that happens in investing. And so people feel like they like, oh, I really understand this founder because I, you know, relate to them. They, you know, this is why alumni and college matters. This is why sports matters. Hobbies like music and other things matter is because people are, you know, sort of self-identifying and saying, okay, cool. Like, I feel like I really understand and I really trust. And this person's going to be a good administrator of my capital and I can pattern match because this was me like 10 years ago. Well, that's really sucks for all the people who don't have representation in VC where people can't be like, Hey, I, you know, no one looks like me. Like no one's identifying with me. It makes it a harder journey. And so I think mm -hmm. like from our perspective, the reason that a founder would want to work with syndicates is not only is it's this like long tail, but it's also this really good way of like sort of building out like more inclusion in the in the investor set. And I think like for me personally on my journey, like I'm somebody who comes at it and I'm like, great, what's the most efficient way, like a path to to a um, to an objective. And I think if we look at and this is going to be a slight side tangent, but if we look at the like. Washington state carbon market, Washington state carbon market, this is a compliance market, failed to pass two times. I think it's two times. We'll call it two times. The second time, even environmentalist groups came out against it. Now, what was the knock is the knock is it may have been like the perfect engineered marketplace, but it hadn't built in the buy-in from all the communities that were affected, HVAC installers, tribal nations, like these communities were not on board because they hadn't been included in the process. And so I think mm -hmm. like, then you fast forward and third time, okay, bring all these communities on board. And they're like, yeah, we support this. This is why, this is why environmental justice helps achieve the objective faster. It's like, it's a bigger coalition. It's a bigger, small army. And so that's one of the big pieces, I think, as far as like, from a climate perspective, coalition building, you know, why are we thinking about diversity? Well, selling, building trust. Why are we thinking about diversity? Like achieving objectives, like having more communities all pushing towards the same goal, more powerful. It's that small army behind. Um, and then there's the last piece of like movement building here, which is just like very much on mm -hmm. 
accepting different technologies and all the good faith efforts towards an objective. So often in press, and I think this is getting into like, how, how does a climate movement happen? Um, sociology mm-hmm. undergrad here, Occidental College studied, you know, spent a whole semester studying various movements, why they succeeded, why they failed. People in um, our leadership team, Ben, pointing out like, hey, this was this was one of the things with um, getting AIDS on people's radar as a movement, getting it to be something that people paid attention to, people allocated capital to, mm-hmm. et cetera, was very much accept all good faith efforts to solve the problem, mitigate the, mitigate the problem, build a cure, et cetera. And so one of the things that happens with media and climate that we've experienced is that like, there's a, there's a goal in media to create this horse race between like, is it nature-based? Is it direct air carbon capture? Is it technology? Is it, is it trees? Like, and I think like, it's not to fall for that horse race and say like, it's, you know, we've been very clear over and over and over in our media communications. And you could listen to all the podcasts where I've said this, like trees aren't a silver bullet. That's like talking point number one. And like, we need all hands on deck. It's like talking point number two. And so I think like very much like not getting sucked into that narrative and accepting all good forms uh, or good, good faith efforts to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And I say good faith efforts, like an important aspect there, like that is the, that is one of the keys to also building out a movement. I think like when we look at our carbon credits, we have advantages and we are the inverse of other technologies. So we are high volume. We are a lower price point. Um, we are longer term, meaning 100 plus years of funded monitoring. Whereas you've got, and we are, you know, as a function of that, we are a, a much more affordable. Now you look at direct air carbon capture, it's got some advantages and disadvantages, the exact inverse of ours, which are, it is instantaneous or close to it, comparative to 100 plus years. Um, it is incredibly expensive, $1,500 to $2,500 a ton. Maybe it gets down to 500 uh, if it goes over the same mm-hmm. sort of multi-decade evolution of solar. Um, it is totally uh, machine-based. There's no natural element to it uh, other than the, like, the physics and the chemistry. Um, and, uh, and it's very low volume. And so you like kind of look at those, we are the exact inverse. Well, it makes sense, like combine them in a mutual fund. Um, so you get like time-based weighting of uh, the, the crediting, you get some of the advantages. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You get a lower price point, you get high volume, um, you know, everybody wins on this. And so I think it's one of those things you, you know, you looked at the, some of those same technologies of biochar, you looked at the mineralization, mm-hmm. uh, weatherization, ocean-based, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of carbon removal. And like, it starts to be like, great, well, we should like create portfolios. And that's where we see Shopify doing some of its work with Planet App, um, which is um, carbon neutral shipping, one of our carbon removal credit buyers. Um, so that's another thing that I think like people can look at, people can 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 start to, you know, see and, and, and understand is, is that perspective of like the all hands on deck approach to things. Absolutely. The phrase I use is uh, rising tide lifts all boats. And this is the rising tide of change, not the rising tide of climate change. But um, we do need all the solutions. And, and that's, that's where we're at. We want a full and active market of climate solutions, of carbon abatement technologies. And, and here we are. So fantastic. Thank you for joining me. By gaining this knowledge, you are now a Climate Avenger. As we all know, knowledge is power. So avenge the climate with us. Let's get the word out. Rate, review, subscribe so others can find this podcast. We are new, so every share is even more important. 
help us grow and share it with the communities that you're a member of, whether it's climate or investing Slack groups, LinkedIn groups. And if you don't mind, share it with a friend or colleague so they can also join us in eventing the climate, especially if they work in climate, are a climate entrepreneur or an angel investor. If you are an accredited investor, join our rolling fund and syndicate on AngelList. If you have questions or want to talk with us, email team at climateavengers.com and Kyle or I will respond. Put your money where your values are. Make money and save the world at the same time. Let's get more capital into climate. To find out more about Climate Avengers, head over to resourcelabs.co slash climateavengers and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes and resources. Until next time. Avenge on.